All right, everybody, I am here today with George Pashas, and he is the founder and CEO of Great American Payment Systems. How are you doing today, George? Good afternoon. I'm good. Good. Well, uh, George and I recently connected on LinkedIn and uh, kind of looked at his profile and thought, you know, this is somebody we need to have on the have on the podcast. So, George, if you could kind of start out, give us a little bit of the backstory of, you know, how did you get into this this crazy industry, how you ended up at Great American Payment Systems. Give us a little bit of a background, if you could. I'm a longtime automobile guy. We're People used to say, if you cut me, gas comes out. But I was a Pontiac dealer for many years. And then Pontiac decided to close and just keep, you know, Cadillac, Buick, Chevy. So I had to reinvent my life. And that's when all these crazy coincidences came into play, which I wish I found this industry many, many years earlier when I was sure. younger. In our showroom, we had in both English and Spanish, it said fair market value to all fair financing for everyone, win both ways at Masi Auto Group. And that was in our showroom, both in English and Spanish. Sure. Pontiac closed. I held my own for about mm, 14, 15 months, and it was like really bleak because when you don't have a franchise, you lose a lot of banks that fund your automobiles. Right. So, I, And I used to drive every day an hour and 20 minutes to work there and back, and I said, uh I'm going to find something close to home. And I asked a niece who we raised to look in the career builder. That's a Chicago Tribune newspaper. Right. Before all the Indeed and Zip and Monster. Yep. It was all newspaper. And there was an ad in there in a company called American Paywise Corporation. Sure. And it said, went both ways. <laughs> and it was funny. like 15 minutes from my home. After a few weeks, I really took to the business and my first full month, I wrote $31.79 leases. This at the time was over the phone. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, was that, those were cold calls or they were leads or what? Yeah, cold calls, automatic dialers, just stuffing you, you know, three, right. 400 calls a day. Right. And he had fired his VP and made me their vice president of sales. I wrote a script, had everybody use the script. We went from like three, four deals a day to 25 deals a day. Wow. My pay was horrible. An ISO called me, American Merchant Services. Transnational was calling me. Retriever was calling me. National Translink was calling me. I went and interviewed at them all, and I chose Transnational. And I was writing deals and sending them there, basically, you know, like a Lone Ranger, you know, pulling doors. Sure, yeah. And uh, and I got really good at it face to face, which because I never thought I could sell ear to ear because I've always been, you know, face to face in the automobile business. But things were really going strong there. This was 2005 when I left Paywise. And then in 06, I had built up a really fast, quick residual. And then I opened up Great American Payments in a small office in Downers Grove. It was only like around 915 square feet. Sure. It was me and two stay-at-home moms that were pulling their hair out because they wanted something to do. So I had them setting appointments for me. Sure. And then I'd go out and smash deals. And then we just grew from there. We have a real nice suite today near the Arboretum Lakes in Lyle. Sure. I was in the Oakbrook Mall before here. And then that's that's how it all started. I wow. just kept building now, the residual. So how long ago was that when you know when kind of Great American Payment Systems was you know founded or created? How long ago was that? Oh six. Oh wow. To, okay. Oh six to two thousand and eight. I was a sub ISO 
of Transnationals and right. Great American Payment Solutions. Okay. With a ton of great support from Transnational. Sure. You know, John Pizzaferro, Brian Olson, some really good guys gave me a lot of, you know, help and backing. And then in 2008, they wanted to shy away from leasing. And in 2008, I wanted to shy away from terminals. I wrote a deal to sell Pioneers with Adelo Software. Sure. You mean you so, mean as far as like wanting wanting something that was going to have less attrition or, or just something more value? Or what was the rationale? Something more value. I didn't. Yeah. I saw the car industry, automobile industry, get totally shot to hell with rebates that was the first kiss of death when you start paying somebody to take your product right (laughs) and i felt the industry here doing that so i started switching merchants i mean i had a good team still doing you know vx 520s that's always going to be a market for for this industry sure i i just didn't like lowering fees right you You wanted you wanted to go after something where it wasn't about the price it was about the value we, yeah, we never did that. So we, we still, to this day, don't go in. It's not about lowering your rates. I mean, it's bringing you to a local relationship. Your rep would take better care of you. We throw them free paper and match their rates. And we've been lucky doing that. And we've been in 2000 and I can't see the trophy. Oh, 2013, I went direct. I broke off from Transnational and I went direct through First Data. Sure, sure better pricing. We do everything in-house. Right, right. And I, I won President's Club in 13. And really, it's crazy because we started boarding deals in May. I was surprised we did. We were their largest volume startup, which I thought was like crazy. I thought they were lying to me, really. They, <laughs> they were just trying to pump you up to keep you going. <laughs> yeah. They flew us out to Turnberry Isle, put us up for a few days. I hung out with you know some great guys, Joe Plameri. I met Guy Chirello who at that time was in charge of releasing the clovers. And it's crazy because that very day, we were installing five Adelos, uh, Pioneer Cypress and mm-hmm. Adelo, in a high-volume family diner, breakfast, restaurant, dinner with a truck stop attached. And I was installing five of them there, which bring a ton of leasing in, too. And I had and and they unveiled the clovers. So we were a pilot program of the clover when it first hmm. came out. However, when it first came out, you know, everybody was excited about it. I was so excited about it because I'm spending at that time software through Adela was like nine hundred bucks right. for a station. Right. You know, now it's come down to they've come off their high horse because of all these you know harbor right, touch and right, all the right. different tablets, but. I, I was a pilot program for Clover. I came in third place as a pilot. I think the only I, I lost out to Bank of America, which is huge, obviously. Right. We've been doing Clovers ever since. And kind of sadly, at the beginning, when Clover first came out, everybody was so pumped up about it. But it really couldn't. So we kind of, in the <laughs> beginning stage, right. me and three other guys, we were like, we oversold it. We had some, you know, we had to swap some out, switch right. them to a Dello. Sure. Because we're putting them in high-end restaurants because I thought it could handle like, you know, like right. Micros or Aloha or Silverware or right. POS. Like my Pioneer and Adelo software we use is it's kind of like Silverware POS. It's the same product, only they buy so many of them, they call it Silverware. Right, right. So, you know, this is but really... My- 
Is it actually a really good transition into my next question there? So let's talk about Clover a little bit more. I mean, obviously, you know, Clover is still very, very popular in the industry. You've seen it from the beginning. Before that, you were selling, you know, Adello and these other full feature, you know, uh, POS systems. Where where does Clover stand now, in your opinion? I mean, are there still some big kind of functionality gaps as far as high end restaurants or like certain verticals? Like, what's what's your thought on Clover in terms of functionality versus these larger competitors like Micros and Adello? It's a great question. If I'm hitting a high end, it's come a long way since then. I mean, yeah. we have one in a place called Glen Ellen Steak Station, uh, Glen Ellen Station Steakhouse, and they have about 25 tables. Hmm. We put four in there. If in the beginning, the beginning Clover had a lot of modifying programs uh, problems mm-hmm. because if you if a merchant had like say like the the Golden Bear. They had micros in there, and I put five clover stations in there. And that was like when I was in Turnberry Isle, we were taking them out of those clovers because they just had way too much volume. They had literally 16 servers on the floor every shift, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. So at that time, the clover didn't have a good enough app for the modifiers, which today I have them in in high-end restaurants. It's just I think – for us, what saves up is saves us is I have four sales reps that I give a little extra bonus to to go and spend a day there and really work with the merchant and its staff. Sure, sure. It's that's just the, it's just really interesting to me because it sounds like your you know your approach. I mean, it sounds like a big role into what you're doing is is the types of merchants you're targeting that you are kind of going after these larger merchants where the value you can add by having somebody there for a day or, you know, providing that local service, the local support. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, that sounds like that plays a pretty big role in what you're doing, that you're targeting specific merchants where you know you can add a lot more value. So it's not just about the price. It's about we're going to help you with this big system that's going to revolutionize your business or at the very least going to dramatically improve things. We just did a local nutrition uh, franchise. Not, he's trying to franchise them. He has four of them right now. Yeah. And we set him up with two clovers in each. Yeah. With the scanners. And and it's a great tool for him because of the inventory. Yep. And they do multiple uh, multi-location stuff too, right? And it all ties in. Yeah. Yep. It all ties yep. in. Yep. It all ties into his iPhone. But it's just about training here. It, to me, it's getting the right reps first off, that are 100% committed, training them for a week in the office and then a week in the field. I do it a little different. I had the model where we had 25 stations setting appointments and we were you know, shooting appointments to people right. in the field. Right. I unplugged that program in 2015. Okay. It was just costing. I thought for me, it'd be a, being a small ISO. You know, we're not like three, four hundred deals a month. You know, we we hit anywhere from ninety-five deals to hundred and fifteen right a month. Right. Mostly clovers and adellos. Sure. It just got a lot to do with training, and and that's what I agree. And it's it's the training and accountability. So we have guidelines. Right. Our guidelines, you know, we're constantly recruiting like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I don't have to recruit as much as I used to like three, four years ago because I really truly have seven. They could be managers basically because they're all in and they help out quite a bit. You know, they'll right. drop what they're doing to, to go train, you know, somebody else's station on whether it's Adela or Clover. Right, right. 
Well, we, we make reps set three appointments every day via from our office. We have a pretty nice office. It's not like humongous, but it's 6,300 square feet. Sure. So I'd like reps to come in and set appointments, at least learn how to set them. And then once they're setting, you know, three appointments a day and at least closing a sale a day, then we kind of cut them loose and they can work from home. Sure. I've had reps that feel really good and and moved from Illinois to, well, we have two reps that just moved to Arizona that are doing really good. It's a hmm. husband and wife team. Okay. So basically it sounds like you're – Yeah, and I, I really – Sorry, I just I wanted to dive into that a little bit more in detail because a lot of people may not have tried that, and that that is a really good approach. I know I've I've had several consulting clients where we implemented something like that, where you know the the concept is you're telling these salespeople that you know hey everybody comes in here on you know Monday morning or like one of the one of the clients I have does uh, Monday is appointment setting day, so everybody comes in on Monday, they have to set about 15 appointments uh, before they can leave. Awesome. You know, and then then Tuesday through Friday, go to your appointments, close your deals, you know, but that concept of we're all going to get together as a team. It's not kind of a lone wolf thing. It's we're all together. We're, we're closing, you know, we're, we're setting appointments to set ourselves up for the rest of the week. I mean, it sounds like that's been pretty successful for you. It is. And Fridays, Fridays, they come in, we do a team breakfast and then they're off in the field to round up 50 to 75 business cards. That's great. And then they bring those business cards in on Monday. And then there are sub reps I have, like, we'll have entry-level positions where, where they come in where we just train them to set appointments because they obviously don't know how to close the, right. the product yet. They know about the product. Sure. So we'll bring them in, and they'll set appointments. And then once they have seven sales, you know, with a senior rep, we bring them in for a week's training. Okay. But sure. I like everyone to come in and, and set appointments because I learned a valuable lesson in 15 because we had a phone room of about $49,000 a month for appointments. I think when you when you feed any sales rep, veteran or rookie appointments, I don't think they respect them or appreciate them or know how hard they are to write. That's a really good point actually. Yeah. They're, I've done it all. You know, I've done I've, I've done it from the from the ground up and and appointments are, are tough to write, you know. They really are. Especially good ones. I, you I, know. Yeah, absolutely. Here, we try to shy away from anybody under 10 grand. Sure. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question based on kind of some of the stuff you've said. I was going to ask you about how do you do this as far as targeting? Because it, do, it does sound like you're, you know, specifically targeting restaurants, maybe not exclusively, but, you know, you're, you're focused on them and then sounds like larger volume. So what are you, are you providing your agents with a list of like, here's some good prospects you should reach out to or how are you doing that? Absolutely. I love Google Maps. Yeah. Me too. I used to buy leads every day from Info USA or yep. USA. They got like five different names now because they're buying everybody up. Right. I like a rep to come in and try to set three to five solid appointments on Google Maps. Each rep, I try to have target just a certain area. And if it's like 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock and they only have, you know, one appointment or possibly two, we'll have one of the entry-level employees work that area with them so he could at least, he or she could have three or five appointments for that one area. Right. And it just saves a lot of windshield time and gas time. Right. You know, we had a phone room before where, you know, they'd set a guy three appointments in Michigan or Colorado and not knowing that it's a 25-minute ride or an hour and a half to his next appointment. Right. And it's, uh, you know. Yeah, he wasted so a lot I've, of time I've doing that. that lesson. I've learned that lesson. So we have reps, you know, that don't come into the office every day, but they have to set three appointments in and send them to our, our front 
our front office and they log all the appointments. But I try everybody to have at least three appointments for a, for a day, a BVAC. And here's something that a lot of reps that we've hired, that we've fired actually, they don't believe in the power of the turnover. And I've had some good guys through the years I've lost. You know, from 06 to now, it's been a, quite a run. Oh, yeah. I like everybody on a minimum to call in with three TOs, to either myself, Sam, Tom, I took a brain lapse, or Crystal. Um, sorry, Cheryl. Sure. We like to turn over every merchant when they're there. Whether they're writing it or not, we no, like wait, to get, call get, them. Tell us a little more. What is a TO exactly? Make, make sure everybody knows what you're talking about there. The turnover when you're there and you call and you say, hey, Mr. Shepard, you know, this is George. I'm over here at ABC Diner. It's a really nice place. I'd like to know if I could, you know, we do a lot of leasing here. And uh, I would like to know if I could have your permission. I know I was supposed to give this discount voucher away, but I would really like to give it to the ABC Diner to where instead of doing $119.99 for 60 months, we're going to slap it down to uh, $79.99 for 48 months. Would you sign off on that? Right. That's just the way we set the TO up. Sure. So it's, it's basically a third-party close. Third-party close. Everybody wants to win something. Right. So we try to make them feel like a winner. Yeah. You know, your volume's a little less than expected. You know, to get this kind of price, you really have to do 75000 a month. But I really like the fact it's a nice family-type orientated business. You've been here for 10 years, you know. Right. I'm sure you don't have much charge back. I'm going to get our national director on the phone, and, and I just want you to talk to him and, and talk up your business. Tell him how great it is because I really want you to get this special pricing. Right. I've had, right. Merchants, I've had merchants, please, Mr. Pashas, I, I want that <laughs> pricing. Please let them give me the voucher. But it's how you set them up and how you train your guys, yeah. you train your men and women in the field. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the only negative thing that a lot of super ISOs have in common, their training, it sucks, plain and simple. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not so much that it sucks, is that it's non-existent. <laughs> right? They, yeah, they just like, they take a pulse, and if there's a pulse, yeah, send them the paperwork. Get in the field. Sure. So one, one more question I have for you. So uh, as far as this training, so I know a lot of uh, ISO managers and executives that would be listening right now are probably thinking to themselves, you know, how on earth in, you know, a week in the field, a week on the phones, you know, how are you getting these people to the point where they can sell a system as complex as Adelo or really even Clover? Is there a, is there training as far as like just focus on, you know, a few features or is it your, like, how are they presenting themselves as like Adelo experts or more as, hey, I've got this one thing. Like, how do you make this transition? Because I know like that's a lot of information to get into somebody's head to be comfortable and confident to go out and pitch a system like that. You're correct. That's why they have to learn how to use the clover. So when they go in, they have a lot of they have a lot of tools in their pocket they can do. Clover has over 250 free apps. Right. It will track your inventory. It's a time clock. It will track your employees. Just the inventory alone and the analytics on it on inventory, on even a small restaurant where they know everybody <laughs> has a pattern. Mondays. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. If you really track employees and you track your team, you'll find they all have a pattern. What they do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sure. We had one rep called himself KG, KG Thursday. Every Thursday, this cat would write three deals. <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, he'd complain that I can't wait 
to Thursday. Thursday's my day. <laughs> sure. Self fulfilling prophecy. So, here, so, so when you know when you when you're a business and you just have a five twenty or an Ingenico or whatever else is out there. Old, actually, we bumped into an old Hypercom the other day. I don't even know how the guy had it. Right. <laughs> Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. Businesses have patterns too. And if you have a merchant, even say a small restaurant with not that big of a menu. Maybe, you know, spaghetti, meatballs, lasagna, beef, sausage, salads, soup. These people prep on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. They prep every day of the week a lot of food right. in the in, with the intentions of offing it all. So you take a restaurant, ideally should have a food cost between 28 and 32%, which very seldom they do. They're always over 35% food cost, hmm. which is a lot of money out of 100 bucks. Yeah, yeah. And you're saying well, largely we, largely because they're not tracking their food inventory, they're, they have, they're ending up with food waste. They don't have an idea of their pattern. Right. I'd love to – I have a rep I use all the time, Marinella's Italian Restaurant. It took me really a hard close, T.O., to talk him into to just trying out the clover. Right. Sign right. up. You'll love it. His food orders are totally on point. His food cost is not 28%, but he was at 37 when we met. He's at 34% right now. That's 3% to his bottom line. Yeah. His staff, now he rotates them. They make more money. They have a little more time off. I've had one girl, Anita, tell me she's making more money now than she did before. Right. Because they, they're not flooding the floor with servers. Like, you know, like a dealership would flood the floor with salespeople. Sure, sure. Yeah, and so basically also, he's he's able to get the right he's able to get the right uh, workforce there and the right resources in the on the right days during that pattern. Not to mention every card you put into the clover with the chip or swipe, you have a you have a database in there of your customer. Right. Sure. Now they're they're doing massive emails. They're putting their birthday in because you could put birthday anniversary. Sure. And they're sending them come in for I think they just did for birthday with the purchase of a bottle of wine, two appetizers. Yeah. And then for the anniversary, they're doing a bottle of champagne. Right. But he's increasing his business. He's yeah. had, I think, we almost 10 months. Almost 10 or not, yeah, 10 months. 10 months. It's interesting because everybody in our industry is talking about you know, implementing technology, selling technology, selling, you know, lower attrition, you know, having a relationship. But I think talking to people that have actually executed that strategy are, are few and far between. And, and as you mentioned already, a big part of that is the training and the accountability and really building a solid team. So um, super interesting stuff. If, if, if people want to learn more about uh, your company, about you, where would you send them? I would say to getgaps.com. So that's, let's see, what is that? G-E-T-G-A-P-S.com. Right. Correct. Awesome. George, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, jump on the podcast with us here. And I really appreciate it. I really appreciate what you do. I, I tell my reps every now and then, you know what, if you feel like you're in a slump, go on CC Pro. It ain't working with me. <laughs> uh, good. But well, I've thanks, man. I appreciate it. No, we've had a lot comment. You, it's nice what you do. And well, I took my hat at This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Well, this week, James, I want to talk about a headline that broke just before the July 4th holiday. 
that I found interesting, and it was about how retailers want the feds to uh, to take a look at and curb big big tech. Right. Um, okay, so there was this letter from the Retail Industry Leaders Association to the Federal Trade Commission, and the Retail Industry Leaders Association is a group of CEOs of the largest retailers, okay, including Best Buy, Home Depot, Target, Walmart, all the really big guys. And the FTC has been on a fact-finding mission into whether changes in technology and business models and so forth are demand, you know, demand changes in right. consumer protection and fair competition laws. And this has been going on for a while, about a year. Right. You know, what, what, I, what I found interesting is that much of the reporting focused on uh, the big tech like Amazon and Google and, and right. the control they wield over Internet product searches. Sure. But what a lot of those stories missed, sort of as we say in journalism, where they buried the head, buried the lead, right. <laughs> at least per our, per our interest, was that the letter also took aim at Visa and MasterCard and urged the FTC to work with the Department of Justice uh, to rein in the card brands um, and to you know, investigate them, particularly in terms of antitrust considerations. Wow. Now – yeah. Now, the big retailers, they've long complained about card acceptance rules. You know that, including right. pricing. Sure. And they've taken the card brands to court. Uh, there was an out-of-court settlement as recently as 2017 where Visa and MasterCard agreed to pay <clears throat> excuse me, over uh, $6 billion in what were effectively interchange refunds. Right. Um, and the Justice Department has also sued MasterCard and Visa for violations of antitrust laws. Uh, that... The latest of those was settled out of court in 2010, I think it was, and led to the car brands dropping prohibitions on things like surcharging and other incentive pricing programs. Now, in their letter to the FTC, the the, uh, retail leaders complained that the interchange pricing model might have served a purpose 50 years ago when Visa and MasterCard were owned by banks. But it's now antiquated and anti-competitive, and actually they said it was uh, – the, the quote that I found amusing was they said it was something out of the Mad Men era. Remember the uh, Mad oh, Men yeah. show? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that about, sounds about right, too, actually. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yep. It really does. It's yeah. sort of like you know, a bunch of guys sitting around in a, in a conference room. Right. Um, but here's a quote which I thought was interesting from the letter. It said, while Visa and MasterCard are no longer owned by their member banks – the fundamental proposition remains the same. Banks do not compete for merchant acceptance of their credit cards, and banks all agree to accept the same interchange fees as their competitors are receiving. Technology has obviated the need there may have once been for this type of competitor collaboration. It should not be allowed to continue in this age of sophisticated technology simply because it was, a, it was necessary decades ago. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Now, you know, this is... This isn't earth-shattering news. I, 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 I think you, we would both agree, James, but I do think it's a yet another clear demonstration that pricing can and should be a competitive differentiator in merchant services generally and in payment acceptance in particular. Yeah. And it demonstrates, I think, why trends like surcharging and cash discounting are, are gaining so many converts. Yeah. The big irony here, though, I think, is that you know the big retailers – rarely pay the highest interchange rates you know they they negotiate much lower rates than everybody else right um but i do think it it, you know it it remains to be seen if anything comes to comes of this call to action 
but it's certainly out there. And, um, you know, in, in this age when everybody's going after big tech, right? I think it's something we ought to watch. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, it really fits into, you know, a lot of the other things. I mean, you look at, you know, the cryptocurrency acceptance now with Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, coming out. Uh, with their Libra or whatever. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of forces at play where, you know, uh, Visa and MasterCard have some very powerful enemies. They also have some very powerful consumer trends that are working against them. So, right. But they also, and they have powerful allies. Well, they do, of course. And and they have a huge war chest of uh, money that can be used for lobbying and and things like that as well. Right. I mean, the thing that blew my mind back when you know, I think it was 2017 when they uh, entered that settlement with with Walmart and, right. and all the other retailers. You know, the six billion dollar settlement. Okay, it was four for four billion for Visa, two billion for Mastercard. Right. You know, they it didn't even affect their financials. No, it was a blip on the radar screen. <laughs> a blip on the radar screen, and that just you know, so you know that just gives you an indication right. of how deep that war chest is. Yeah, I mean they're they're definitely not going down without a fight. Uh, that's you know that's that's for sure. They're going to be protecting the status quo until the bitter end. And uh, you know, and oh, and, yeah. I, and ironically, I mean <clears throat> that's not really the worst thing for for those of us in the industry that are all kind of depending on this trickle down. Uh, oh, no. You know, system. Uh, but I, I think change is inevitable, and I think it's I think it's good to bring it up because it's it's one of those things where people need to be aware that you know there there is a war that is uh, has been happening and continues to happen between the retailers and the card brands, right. and you know, and and will major change come of it? Uh, you know, I don't know. I I think it's definitely possible. I think major change is coming. I don't know if it's going to come from that front or somewhere else, but I think you definitely want to be aware of what's going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So awesome. Good stuff, Patty. Thank you. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. There are so many great, talented salespeople in our industry. And one of the common themes is that I'll talk to salespeople, I'll talk to sales managers, and they'll say, you know, we have these full pipelines, you know, uh, people are interested, I'm making connections with people, people seem to like me, but I'm not closing deals. And the reason that that's happening more often than not is a misunderstanding about three words. We're going to talk about these three words today. Yes, no, and maybe. Yes, no, and maybe. So many salespeople believe that no is the enemy of yes. So salespeople really don't want to hear a no. That's not what they want to hear. They want to hear a yes. And I mean, you know, when you think about it logically, that makes some sense, right? We want to get sales. Um, Unfortunately, this concept of no being the enemy of yes is actually not true, okay? The real enemy of yes is maybe, 
Okay, maybe is the enemy of yes. No is a necessary byproduct of closing deals, right? And so think of it in this way. Think of it like if you're trying to uh, achieve a uh, batting record in baseball. If you look at somebody like Babe Ruth, you know, everybody talks about how Babe Ruth had so many strikeouts. Well, that's because Babe Ruth was at the plate. He was swinging at the ball and he was swinging for the fence, you know, and as a result, he got a lot of strikeouts. But if you take away the strikeouts, you also take away the home runs. Now, if Babe Ruth had, you know, uh, stayed in the dugout and never gone to the plate, right? Um, he would never have had any home runs. He wouldn't have had any strikeouts or any home runs. So the no and the yes in that same way, they are kind of two sides of the same coin, and that coin is closing the sale. So when you have a lot of people that are interested and your pipeline's getting really full, like a lot of salespeople say, James, I don't even have time to prospect for two, three hours a day because I have so many people I have to follow up on that are interested. So when that happens, what, what you have to do is you have to realize that, that maybe, the word maybe, is your enemy. Now, what is, what is maybe? In our industry, maybe sounds like this. I'm really interested in what you're saying, but I need a little time to think about it. Or, uh, yeah, that sounds really good. I need to talk to my business partner. I need to talk to my spouse, right? Or, uh, you know what? Can you leave some information for me? I really want to look this over when I have a little bit more time. That's maybe, right? So maybe is actually the enemy of yes. So here's what you do. If your pipeline gets really full, make a commitment to go out to all of your interested prospects and leave with either a yes or a no, but not a maybe. So sometimes you've got to push a little bit farther. You've got to be more assumptive. You have to close more times in order to get that decision. But the key is you have to get decisions. And a lot of salespeople in this industry specifically, because they're dealing with small business owners who are tough to close, um, what will happen is they'll go through a whole week and they haven't gotten any decisions. And so you have to actually take yes and no and lump those two into the same bucket as just decisions. So the question is, how many decisions did you get this last week? How many people gave you a yes or a no? And if you're honest, you're probably going to say, well, you know what? I got a lot of maybes this week. If you got a lot of maybes, you're, that's not closing the sale. So you got to go back to those people and you have to close harder with the idea of I'm either going to get a yes or I'm going to get a no. Now, next week, I want to talk about the three stages of this. And so there's there's three different kind of levels of the close or three attempts that I like to go through. So make sure you tune in next week and I'll talk to you about, okay, now you, you know, okay, I got to go close the sale. So, you know, value those no's. Hey, that's great. I got a no. That's fine. Well, I just don't want a maybe. But then let's talk next week about, okay, so how do you close so you can get more yeses when you're closing with the with the understanding that you're going to get some no's. I, I, there is no close I can give you. There's no sales process I can give you where everybody's going to say yes. That's never going to happen. Between Somewhere between one-third and two-thirds of the qualified prospects that you get a decision from, it's going to be a no. Um, there's nothing anybody can do about that, right? But what I can do is I can give you a good uh, you know, process to close people to hopefully get that one third. So the people who are interested, we want to get one out of three of them for sure. Then we can work on more advanced closing to get the the other third in the middle. So uh, you know, kind of a law of sales is that if you have three you know qualified interested prospects and you go to close them, one's gonna say yes and one is gonna say no, and there's nothing you can do about that. Doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are, one out of three is gonna say yes, one out of three is gonna 
to say no. The other third is the difference between the average and the amazing sales professional. Uh, the, the average sales professional or below average is doing the one out of three. The amazing, incredible sales professional is doing two out of three. And that's really the only difference. So we're going to talk about closing techniques le next week. But just remember this. The enemy of yes is maybe. No is a necessary byproduct of closing the sale. If you're not hearing no, you're also not hearing yes. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.